You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. We turn in your Bible to John chapter 11 as we continue to make our way uh, through uh, John. We'll be in the first 16 verses uh, today. Thank you, Adam and orchestra and a choir for leading us in worship. I do have my family here today. This is the first time that my aunts and uncles have been here together uh, anywhere to hear me preach. They've been avoiding it. But as I turn 55 and get closer to death, they decided it's time. And so we are very grateful to have them. It just, I hope I can avoid being emotional. Um, we have a lot of friends here uh, with us today um, from our days in Louisville, and we're so grateful uh, to, to have you as well. We love you as well. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, we have our Good Friday service on Friday at 6 o'clock, so please plan to be here at 6 o'clock. And then Sunday morning, I know this is strange, at 6.17, we are looking at what the meteorologists are saying about sunrise. Uh, we're having our sunrise service. So at 6.17 on Sunday morning, so please plan to be here for that. Well, if you would, look with me. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses, but get at the heart of this passage. Verse 3, so the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, sent to him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's pray. Father, we know that you do all things for your glory, and so that the Son of God may be glorified through all things. And we know that whatever glorifies you is compatible with your greatest expression of love in every situation for your people. May we see that today and believe it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last 10 days, major tornadoes in the South and the Midwest have killed approximately 50 image bearers. As we've discussed in the Gospel of John, theologians and philosophers call this kind of travesty natural evil. It's not due to any per person's particular sin. It's just the, the consequence of living in a sin-broken world. We experience natural evil, like tornadoes. And all of us are, are still grieved and shocked over the shooting at Covenant Christian School in the Green Hills area of Nashville on Monday where three nine-year-olds and three adults were brutally murdered, including the, the daughter of the Covenant Presbyterian pastor there, the, the mother congregation of this school, his daughter was murdered. 
The heartbreak of that is incalculable and unthinkable, and it's, it's painful to process. We've learned over time that at least some of these victims were targeted by this 28-year-old female who came into the school, a former student. Now, though this act is a unique expression of moral evil, and though most of us will not die from tornadoes, some of you have been hit by tornadoes, I know that, but we all know intuitively that all we have to do is live long enough and we will experience natural and moral evil. Uh, Yet remarkably, grief and pain tend to catch us off guard. Uh, Grief and pain tend to blindside us. We, We know deep down that we're not immune to that, but we tend to live in denial of that, don't we? But then we face uh, this appalling pain and our unwarranted naivety to that pain betrays itself in questions like, why? Why God? Where is God? Could he not protect us? The one who rebuked the wind and the waves with a simple command? Could he not protect us from this? Well, the psalmists themselves dealt with these issues. So, for instance, in Psalm 10, verse 1, and I love the Bible's honesty. Uh, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Now, this is someone who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's asking, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Job asked God, as I've, I've shared this with you before, 16 times Job asked God, why? And the Lord's response to Job was 70 questions back to Job. Well, the purpose of the Bible is not to answer all of our why questions. We have a bunch of them, don't we? But it does give us, it gives us a very real and enduring hope in the face of suffering and death by revealing to us the one who will ultimately put death to death by his cross, his resurrection, and his return. And through his death and his resurrection and his exaltation and his return, we will be able to say with John in Revelation 24, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. I look forward to that day. And perhaps there's no better text, and this is the providence of God. This is where we happen to be in our text. There's no better text that we could look at today that drives that home than John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. This passage is really a prologue. It's an introduction, a prologue that kind of sets up what we probably would recognize as the most famous event in the life of Jesus apart from his cross and his resurrection. And that is the seventh sign miracle in John. John has seven sign miracles. All of them point 
to what Jesus would ultimately accomplish through his cross, his resurrection, and his return. A seventh sign miracle that demonstrates supremely to us God's love for us expressed through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we begin to see that love expressed from the very beginning of this passage. We see in the first four verses a love that hears. This is so comforting for every believer, a love that hears. Look with me in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill. He was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we saw last time that Jesus, under the threat of being assassinated by stoning, took his disciples and they left Jerusalem. Now, Jesus came to die, but as we have seen, his hour had not yet come. His hour would be at the Feast of Passover. And this was not the time. We're about three to four months out from that event. And so he has left Judea, and he has gone up north into Galilee, where it's still safe for him. And then he receives this message about Lazarus. Now, this is the first reference to Lazarus in the gospel. In fact, we will only read about this Lazarus in John 11 and John 12. There's another Lazarus that we read about in Luke 16, but that's a different person. So Lazarus, is. this is the first time we've seen him, and, and John does not expect his readers to know who he is. And so he explains who he is a little bit. He explains that Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. And John assumes the reader knows who Mary and Martha are. It's very likely that they have read John, uh, Luke's gospel. Luke came out, was written before the gospel of John, and we have that remarkable account we'll look at perhaps next week about Mary and Martha, uh, one sitting at the feet of Jesus. That was Mary and, and Martha who was busy serving Jesus. And Jesus kind of rebuked Martha in that passage. That's in Luke chapter 10. But it seems that the gospel writer, John, assumes they know that story. But then he provides a further description about Mary in verse 2 um, that we don't actually read about until chapter 12. So again, John assumes that the readers know what he's talking about. Now, last time we saw that John or Jesus took his disciples and they fled Jerusalem and they went to Bethany of Galilee. That is where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And so now he hears that Lazarus, who's living in Bethany of Judea, is sick. The distance between those two places is about 100 to 110 miles. Now that's a long trip on a car. Uh, they're going to make that trip by foot. But notice verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. How tender is that? He whom you love is ill. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that we read 
that Jesus loves someone. Now, we know he loves the world. That's why he came. But this is the first time that we explicitly see that he loves someone. In this case, it's Lazarus. Now, we've seen in John 3, 16, that God loves the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, we've seen that, the, that people love the darkness rather than the light, John 3, verse 19. We've seen that the Father loves the Son, chapter 3, verse 35. And we've seen that those who have God as their Father love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's John 8, verse 42. But this is the first time that we see that Jesus loves as well. And the one that he loves in this particular case is sick. Now this teaches us, contrary to the prosperity preachers, who teach if you have enough faith, you won't get sick. By the way, prosperity preachers' uh, life longevity is, the, the, is no greater than anybody else's life longevity. Have you ever noticed that? They die the same age everyone else dies, right? And the prosperity they preach, they're the only ones that get rich. The people they're preaching to don't get rich. They get poor because they're writing checks to the prosperity preachers. But contrary to what the prosperity preachers preach, this man is loved by Jesus He's a faithful believer in Jesus, and by no fault of his own, he is sick. He is sick. In other words, in one sense, believers are like everyone else. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're going to have a better batting average than the unbelievers on your team. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a higher salary than the people in your workplace. It doesn't mean you're going to make better grades than the unbelievers in your classroom. And in this case, it doesn't mean that we aren't subject to sin or sin and death and disease, just like everyone else. But it also doesn't mean that believers are like unbelievers in every sense. For one, we, through the all-sufficient work of Jesus have been given the gift of prayer. Now, that's not to say unbelievers don't pray. They do. Before I was converted to Christ, I prayed. But many unbelievers are like me before I was converted. They only prayed in emergencies. The believer has been given this gift so that when struggle arises, or even if struggles aren't there, they pray out of relationship. Indeed, Mary and Martha's appeal to Jesus here teaches us a few things about prayer. For one, because they had a relationship with Jesus, when this concern arose with their brother Lazarus, what was their reflex action, their reflex response, their knee-jerk response? It was to cry out to Jesus, right? That's one of the marks of a believer. But secondly, I want you to notice the basis for which they, they pray. He whom you love. Now that's important. They don't appeal to him based on their love for him. They don't appeal to him based on Lazarus's love for Jesus. They love Jesus. Of course they love Jesus. And Lazarus loved Jesus. Of course. But given who Jesus is, as the eternal son of God, their love for Jesus, just like our love for Jesus, could never be an adequate basis for that appeal. 
because our love is never going to be enough. But his love is sufficient. And this principle really underlies our entire relationship with God. For instance, in John 3, 16, it doesn't say for the world so loved God that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. The ground of our relationship with God is not our love for him, which is weak at best. It's his love for us. And I think this should be encouraging to every believer. Matthew Henry the Puritan says it in a way that only Puritans can say it. That's why I quote him. Our love to him is not worthy speaking of. But to us, his love can never be enough spoken of. And it should encourage us because maybe you're like me. Your love varies. Your emotional, your spiritual state is up and down. It varies. Jesus' love knows no change. It knows no change. It's an infinite, eternal, and immutable. That is an unchanging love. And that's why our prayers are not offered in our name. Lord, you know how much I love you. Our prayers are offered in Jesus' name. We're coming to the Father, not by our merits, not by our love. We're coming to the Father through the Son. We're coming through the righteousness and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But their prayer, or their appeal here, teaches a third thing about prayer as well. They left Jesus' response to their prayer to him. He, they don't tell him what to do. They just bring the need to him. It reminds me of Mary's simple request in John chapter 2, verse 3, at the, at the wedding banquet. All Mary said to her son was, they have no wine. They've run out of wine. He did, she didn't tell him what to do. They have no wine. You know, maybe you're like me. I have the tendency to use prayer to dictate to God like I'm his chief strategist, right? And we don't want the world hinging on my perspective of things. Our part is to lay the need before him. Now, there are explicit promises that you can claim when you pray. The explicit promises of God, you can claim those promises based on the trustworthiness of God. But on the hidden things, on the things that we don't know surely are explicitly what God will do, our job is to trust him with his wisdom and his goodness in response. To trust Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, notice in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, that is that appeal, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So here we see in this one verse the motivation behind everything God does. Everything God does, even the things we cannot understand ourselves or comprehend, everything God does, he does for his glory through the glorification of his son. If you get that right, it's going to help you in your, 
in your times of struggle. And that brings us to verse 5. We've seen the love that hears. Jesus has heard their appeal. Now, in verse 5 and 6, and we're not going to like this, we see the love that delays. The love that delays. Look with me in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We've already seen that he loved Lazarus, and here we see, so you, in this passage, we're seeing an emphasis on the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. He loved them. And so in verse 6, here's what we expect if we're not familiar with this passage. Because he loved them, as soon as he hears Lazarus is sick, he hits the road. That's what we would do. Loved one is sick. You hit the road. But notice verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Wow. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If someone you loved was sick and dying... Would you wait like Jesus? What kind of logic is this? Jesus is showing his love by delaying. Two days on top of that. And here's another question. If you were Mary and you were Martha and you found out that Jesus delayed two days. Would you feel unloved at that moment? I think I would. But here is a very important point. What Jesus is teaching them and what John is teaching us by giving us this narrative is that God's delay, Jesus' delay in answering our prayers is not a sign of indifference or impotence on his part. In fact, he stayed two days for at least two reasons. As we saw in verse 4, that God's glory may be magnified. That's the purpose of history. That's, that's why God does everything he does. And the second reason is because he loved them. Again, I make the point, the point that the Lord Jesus Christ infinitely knows what most magnifies God's glory. And what most magnifies God's glory is completely compatible with how he supremely expresses his love for us in every given situation we face. Again, Jesus' response here is a, a great example of God's approach to answering our prayers. Not that we could ever plumb the depths of, of, of God's mind, but we, we learn a couple of things here from Jesus' response, his delay here. First of all, we see that the Lord's perspective on our trials is infinitely greater than our perspective on our trials. All we want is relief. We want what is broken to be fixed. 
And there's something bigger at stake from the Lord's perspective. A second thing we learn here that is that his plan for addressing our struggles and our troubles is a plan that initially may cause us to doubt his love. It may initially cause us to doubt his love. But again, the irony is that he delayed because he loved them. But the surprise isn't over. And that brings us to the final point. This brings us to the last part of this passage. We've seen the love that hears, the love that delays, and then finally we see the love that tests, that tests us. Look with me in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Again. The last time they were in Judea, they were picking up stones to stone him. They were going to assassinate him. And his hour had not come. And so they had fled Judea. And now they're in the northern part, Galilee, where it is safe for Jesus for the time. And as a result, the disciples are not pleased with Jesus. If we had been one of those 12, we would not have been pleased with him either. Because going back south to Judea puts them in the bullseye. Now, why do I say it's a test? Because he could have said, let us go to, to Bethany. But Bethany doesn't represent the place where they're trying to kill him. Judea does. And Bethany is in Judea. And so he explicitly says, let us go to Judea. Judea represents murderous hostility for Jesus. Well, notice in verse 8, the disciples said to him, unless you judge them, you're looking in the mirror here. I know I am. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? Aren't we like that? I'm like that. We often think Jesus needs our counsel. We often think that he needs to hear from me, the sage. And the disciples evidently thought that Jesus had forgotten about what had just happened. And scholars debate, was it a week ago? Was it a month ago? It's somewhere between a week and a month ago that that attempted assassination had taken place. Well, notice in verse 9, Jesus answered. Now, this is a kind of a parable here. He did this often. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, you're starting to see, hopefully, uh, this analogy that he's making. Who has he already claimed is the light of the world? He's the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Here's basically what he's saying. It's safer to be in my will, the light of the world, 
and in the crosshairs of assassination attempts in Judea than to be walking in darkness in the safety of Galilee. It's safer to be in the will of God in Jesus Christ in the midst of a storm than to be on the, on the shore, outside the storm, outside the will of God. That's what he's saying here. But this entire text confounds us. It does. That's why I titled this sermon, The Confounding Love of Jesus Christ. It confounds us because we've already seen, because he loved Mary and Martha, he delayed two days. And now we see he's willing to take his disciples right back into the heart of murderous threats after bringing them out of it just a few days or weeks earlier. Well, notice in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Beautiful language. This is one of those several texts that teach us that for the believer who dies, it's described metaphorically as sleep. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that when we die, we, we have some kind of, uh, our, our souls and our spirits go to sleep. That's not what that's referring to. It's just referring to this is a metaphor that for the believer, death is not a tragedy. In fact, uh, you see even in Deuteronomy 31, as early as the law, the Torah, God said to Mo, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. He pictures Moses' death as just lying down like he's going to take a nap. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 18, he describes the believers who have died as those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. Again, when you die as a believer, your, your soul, your spirit, uh, spirit immediately goes into the presence of God. That's why Jesus could tell the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Away from the body, present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. So why does Jesus and why does the scripture describe for the believer death is sleep? Well, the answer to that is deeply encouraging. Deeply encouraging for those who face death and for those who have lost believing loved ones to death. Our natural thought is to see death as the ultimate champion. Our natural thought is to see death as undefeated. That's why we naturally fear it. And it's why the disciples don't want to go back to Judea. They fear death. But the Son of God sees death differently. And this is one of those times we have to let the Scripture transform our thinking on this, okay? Yes, Jesus weeps over death. We're going to see that when he stands at the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps over death because death represents an alien invader. It represents the fact that right now things are not the way they're supposed to be. And yet, we see with Jesus in this passage that for the dying believer, death does this person no harm. 
I mean, think about Psalm 23. For those who have the Lord as their shepherd, the only encounter you will have with death is with its shadow, the shadow of death. Now, my daughter Ella, when she was a little girl, she was scared of shadows. She would scream. We thought someone had broken into our house. It was just a shadow. We know shadows can scare you, but shadows do not harm us. And that's all death is for the believer. Indeed, here's what John writes, facing death himself in Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Those who are dying in Jesus Christ, in other words, by grace through faith. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Isn't that beautiful language? Dying for the believer is gain. It's a resting from our labors. That's why he calls death sleep. Well, look with me in verse 12 as we come to the end. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And that one of the reasons I love these gospels is they're written by the disciples, and it does not betray them well. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. And again, we're looking in the mirror. Then Jesus told them plainly, okay, I've got to get plain with you. <laughs> you obviously do not understand uh, I've, been with, I've been with you for almost three years and you still don't understand the way I teach. Lazarus has died. You get it? Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Wow. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. I am glad. If he had been there, we'd healed him. But gladness is not the usual response to death, is it? I am glad I was not there so that he could die, in other words. But our gladness, my gladness, is generally short-sighted. In fact, we have the capacity as finite and fallible human beings to be glad for things that will ultimately do us harm. We just allow micro circumstances to make us glad in the moment. But ultimately, those things will do us long-term harm. All you, have to go to, all you have to do is go out to Tumor's Corner on Thursday nights or Friday nights, and you see students who are really glad in the moment. But they're ignoring the long-term consequences of that. But from God's perspective, and this is why it's so encouraging to us, there are many things that make us sad right now. Many things. But in eternity, we will be glad. We will be glad. And that's what we see here in this text. And in this case, the greatest of all the sign miracles... Again, there's seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John. And this greatest of sign miracles would be a means of belief 
for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. And this means of belief is so eternally critical. This in itself drives home to us that apart from saving belief in Jesus, apart from saving belief in Jesus, all that Jesus has said about death is not true. It's only true for those who believe. That's why the emphasis on believing in the gospel of John. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You have to understand the bad news in order for the gospel to be good news. Well, notice how the passage ends. And I think we can relate to this fellow. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin. I've thought a lot about that. Why did we have to be told his name means twin? Because we don't know who his twin is. Yes, we do. The person reading it right now. We are Thomas. I think that's the reason we're told his name, what it means. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, now this sounds heroic. I don't believe it's heroic. I think it's sarcasm based out of his nature to doubt. Let us also go that we may die with him. Of course, we know he's, we're going to see his doubting nature after the resurrection. That's why his nickname, and I, I wonder if it still bothers him in glory, Doubting Thomas. But you could also call him Rational Thomas. It's not irrational for Thomas to say, if we go back to Judea, we could very well be facing death. In fact, in two to three months, perhaps, maybe four months, Jesus will die there. At the feast of Passover, Passover, as the Passover lamb. And 11 of the 12 will ultimately die as martyrs. And so Thomas isn't insane. He's rational. But the problem is that our reason cannot account for the providence and the plan and the power of God we're going to see this later after Good Friday. When Jesus is crucified, he's buried, and all is lost for the disciples from their perspective. Indeed, it is hard to process Jesus' delay here, isn't it, in this passage? It's hard to process it, especially when you're in the middle of the storm. It's hard to process a delay that would end in the death of Lazarus. But remember this. God didn't immediately act either with Jesus. When he was arrested, he was charged, and he was crucified on the cross. Why? Because God had a greater plan than saving his son from pain. He had a greater plan than saving his son from death and harm. 
And that helps us answer the objection that many would have to this text. Well, it's easy for Lazarus to have faith. Jesus raised him. Well, Lazarus would die again. Remember that. But how about me? He didn't raise my loved one. So how can this be an encouragement to me? And it's for this reason. This sign miracle points to the day when every believer will overcome death once for all. Death shall be no more. Because of what this sign miracle would point to, the achievement of Jesus Christ, who on the cross took the judgment that you and I deserved. We deserve judgment because a righteous judge has to penalize crimes. He took it as our substitute. And then God raised him. And in the resurrection, not only was that resurrection signaling that the debt was paid, it was God's amen to the it is finished of the son. That resurrection defeated death for every believer. Yes, we still physically die. But at the resurrection, he took care of the second death, that is our judgment, and eternal death, that is eternal punishment. And one day when he returns, physical death will be no more. And that's why Jesus' words, all the way back in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, could be engraved on every believer's tombstone. On every believer's tombstone, this illness does not lead to death. So when confronted with disease, and you will be, when confronted with delay, and you will be, when confronted with death, and you will be, our comfort is that it's not indifference or impotence on our Savior's part. God's glory and his love in Jesus Christ, in spite of what we may see or feel, is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Indeed, Christ our hope in life and death. So as Adam and the musicians come forward... As we sing, I pray every believer could could meditate on how glorious our, our Christ is. Even in the delays, he's showing his love for you. Revel in that love. Be comforted by that love. But there may be some of you who do not yet know the Savior. You know him not by birth. You know him by the second birth. You know him by repenting of your sins and and trusting in his work as Savior for you. Living the life you could not live, dying the death that you deserve, and being raised from the grave as your substitute. If you will trust in Jesus today, your sins will be forgiven and you will have this hope in life and death. Won't you respond to that as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time 
or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.